Fantasy is a natural human activity. It does not destroy or even insult reason. For creative fantasy is founded on a recognition effect, but not a slavery to it. From an essay on fairy stories by J.R.R. Tolkien. I'm Nicholas Kotar, author of fantasy inspired by Slavic fairy tales and seeker after the good, the true, and the beautiful. You're listening to Fantasy for Our Time. In this podcast, I discuss classic and new fantasy media, have long and involved conversations with authors and storytellers, and explore how stories can help us all live a better, more fulfilling life. Hello, dear friends, and welcome to episode 21 of the podcast. Last week, we discussed how we can find a mentor in trying times. But find him or not, the next step in overcoming difficulties is harder. As we continue our examination of the life of Aragorn, we must come to an inevitable conclusion. We must embrace solitude. The stories have much to say about this, but not all of what they say is easy to hear. Today's show is sponsored by my wonderful patrons. They are the backbone of my work. They inspire me and they keep me creating. If you'd like to support this show, you can join for just $2 a month or more if you like. This week, I'm very happy to give a special gift to my patrons, a new and exclusive novella, The Son of the Deathless. Visit patreon.com forward slash Nicholas Kotar to get your copy. And if you enjoy this podcast, I'd be very grateful if you left a rating and a review on Apple or wherever you listen. It does help other people discover this podcast. Thank you for those who have already done so. And now on to today's show. This whole series was inspired by uh, a deep dive into the life of Aragorn that I did, and that was a few weeks ago. You can also find that video uh, on my YouTube channel, uh, which you can find if you just put my name into the search bar in YouTube. And it was... um, it was based on a talk that I gave a while back uh, about how Aragorn is a perfect um, model for the for the heroic for a heroic figure. But as I was reading it, I thought, wait a minute, this he's much more than just a, a storybook hero. He's a perfect example of how we can turn the difficulties that have, that face us, especially unexpected ones, that we we can ignore to our own detriment or pass through and become better through the process. And he can teach us actually very specific ways in which to make that work and in which we can begin to live a life that is more deep and more meaningful uh, and more authentic and just better in every possible way, even after this COVID uh, idiocy and nonsense and horribleness all passes and may pass quickly. Uh, I wanted to start today's video, which is going to be about the secret of solitude and how solitude can help you make meaning for yourself and for others. I'm going to start with a quote. Uh, I'm not going to say who it is at first. Maybe some of you will have heard it and will recognize it, but it's a really interesting quote. Imagine what a variety of noises reverberates around my ears, says this man. I have lodgings right over a bathing establishment. So picture yourself the assortment of sounds which are strong enough to make me hate my very powers of hearing. When your strenuous gentleman, for example, is exercising himself by flourishing leaden weights, when he is working hard, or as pretends to be working hard, I can hear him grunt. Or wherever he releases his imprisoned breath, I can hear him panting in wheezy and high-pitched tones. Or perhaps I notice some lazy fellow content with a cheap rubdown and hear the crack of the pummeling hand on his shoulder, varying in sound according as the hand is laid on flat or hollow. 
Add to this the voice of the man who always likes to hear his own voice in the bathroom, or the enthusiast who plunges into the swimming pool with unconscionable noise and splashing. <laughs> so you say, what iron nerves or deadened ears you must have if your mind can, mind can hold out amid so many noises. And he says, well, how about this? Amid the, among the sounds that din round me without distraction, I include passing carriages, a machinist in the same block, a saw sharpener nearby, or some fellow who is demonstrating with little pipes and flutes at the fountain, shouting rather than singing. Obviously, this is slightly dated, and you can tell by the reference to carriages, but uh, I kind of changed the language a little bit uh, to make it a little bit more obvious that this is very similar to what is going on in any large, in any big city at any point in history, including right now. This is actually Seneca. So this is ancient Rome. Um, and I just thought how, in, how, as I read this quote, I thought how interesting it is that some problems that we as human beings tend to have um, don't really vary all that much from time to time. And yet Seneca was a remarkably um, productive man who was able to write and write some of the greatest philosophy ever written. Uh, while having all this din happen outside of his window. And he was able to do it because he had found the secret of solitude. He figured it out. Now, what about today? In the reality of post-COVID life, especially those of us who have children and have to work from home, yes, I am sure some of you are here listening, you know that it's a whole different level of difficulty when it comes to actually finding that necessary quiet and solitude and stillness and peace in which to actually do some sort of productive and meaningful work. Our children are running around all the time, they're making noise, you can't, for the life of you, tell them to be quiet, otherwise, well, bad things happen when you tell small children that they should be quiet while you're working. Believe me, I have tried. And the sad reality is that though we are social animals, add to this the fact that we tend to absorb negative energy around us much more than cheerfulness and joy. And now I congratulate you all, this is the first time you'll ever, you will have ever heard me quote Nietzsche, and it might be the last time I ever quote Nietzsche. So let this moment be emblazoned in your memories as something that will never probably happen again. But here's what Nietzsche has to say about this. He says, a single joyless person, joyless person, is enough to create constant discouragement and cloudy skies for a whole household. And it is a miracle if there is not one person like that. Happiness is not so nearly contagious a disease. <laughs> of course, he has to call happiness a disease, but that's Nietzsche for you. All of this uh, is very true, right? You find it, you find it in yourselves. You find it in your lives. I found a wonderful example of it just recently. My book club is reading the book of the Dun Cow. For those who don't know and who might be interested, I do have a book club on as connected to my Patreon account, Patreon.com/slash Nicholas Kotar, and we have been reading some of the old and new classics, mostly of fantasy or speculative fiction in general. And we're just about to finish the book of the Dun Cow, which is a fantastic book. But in that book, I'm not going to read you a quote because there isn't one succinct quote that brings this point. But at the end of the novel, without giving too much away, uh, the author does something very brave. He, he actually emulates Tolkien in this particular sense. He has the main character, Chanticleer the Rooster, fail in his quest. Chanticleer the rooster does an amazing thing. He's able to turn back the tide of tremendous and horrifying evil in the form of a swarm of basilisks that come, that are the progeny, the literal progeny of a uh, snake rooster 
amalgam that is birthed basically through the union of the of the demonic and the physical in a very disgusting fashion. Um, he is able to destroy Cockatrice, this uh, horrifying amalgam beast, and is also able to stem the tide of the basilisks that are his children, but at the cost of his faith, at the cost of his ability to see the larger picture. And as soon as he kills Cockatrice, the real evil appears, and the real evil is Worm. Worm is the Worm Ouroboros, it is the dragon at the heart of the world that gnaws its own tail. If you don't know what I'm talking about, look it up. It's a really fantastic and interesting uh, image, metaphor, and myth uh, because it says a lot about the nature of evil. And it also illuminates a lot of uh, ancient mythological storytelling in very interesting ways. But Worm then makes his appearance after Cockatrice, his son, uh, fails initially. And, and uh, Chanticleer, faced with the actual enemy, and unexpect not expecting that this would be the enemy, thinking that he had already won the, the battle, thinking that he had already won the war, ends up winning only the battle, and the coming of Worm overwhelms him with a sense of utter and total despair. So much so that when he is surrounded by the two people that love him, people, I call them people, the two characters that love him the most, um, the dog, uh, Mundo Kani the dog, and his beloved wife, uh, Pertilope, he is unable to accept from them any source of consolation. He looks at them and all he can see is enemies. And this is a profound statement actually on the reality of how human how, how human beings tend to react to negative energy around them if they have gone to a point where despair begins to overcome you the kind words of loved ones can become weapons can can become something that is incapable of bringing you out because you've so completely become overwhelmed by this reality that all you see in the face of your loved one is an enemy it's a frightening thing and, if, and i think a lot of probably a lot of you have experienced it but it's it's a really wonderful moment in the novel because it illustrates it through the grand medium of epic storytelling. And it shows you, uh, the story shows you very clearly how his problem was pride, but it was also an inability to embrace solitude in the right way. And I'll get to what I mean a little bit later. Now, if we go from the sublime to the mundane, for myself, yesterday was one of those days, one of those days when... Uh, that would have felled even Chanticleer, the great rooster. And it's, it's these little things, right? You start off in the morning, you wake up, everything's wonderful, you're ready to, to face the day, you know, I'm sure many of you will, will understand what I'm talking about. And then, you know, a, a stray word by somebody who has a tendency to say stray words to get you upset, and already that little foundation of happiness that was there in the morning begins to crumble. Then another person walks by, possibly even in your own house household, and says something completely random or completely unconnected with anything that further starts to chink at the foundation of that happiness. And then after that, every single person you encounter happens to be going through the worst moment of their day. And you happen to be right there at every single person's worst moment. And you are the bearer of the brunt of that negative energy. Once, twice, three times. By the middle of the day, it's happened seven or eight times. I'm sure you guys have had days like this, but my day was like this for sure yesterday. 
And by that point, any, any remnants of the joy that you had in the morning is completely gone. And what can you possibly do? Well, you keep hammering away at the day, right? You keep forcing yourself to, to get up and keep forcing yourself to do the thing that you must do because this is a manifestation of unexpected hardship and difficulty. And what have we been talking about in these videos except let's take these moments, overcome them, and become the better for them. But we're all human. Certainly I was yesterday. And by the evening, it was one of those situations where I came home after not being home for the whole day. Most of the time I work from home for most of the day. And the comforting words of my own wife were like knives. They were like, they were like Pertilope's words to Chanticleer. And what it took wasn't the positive moral support of my wife, even though she gives that in droves and she is absolutely amazing. But what was needed in that moment, for better or for worse, was going into a quiet room, descending into my own thoughts, then trying to reconcile the absolute noise and insanity of those thoughts with the stillness of my heart, which wasn't very still. Trying to make it still and then trying to recon trying to force it to be still and then after the heart becomes still to force the thoughts to reconcile with the stillness of the heart that eventually brought me to a space where at the moment where my mother comes in and says, look, the kids are need, need to go to bed. Your wife has a class that she has to give at 8 p.m. It's almost time. You know, you're needed upstairs. <laughs> I could get up and I could go and my emotions then were freed to reflect the joy and the frolic and the unimpeded and absolutely not depressed reality of being a six, a four, and a two-year-old at the end of a long and tiring day. Um, so that's what solitude did for me in that moment. As it wasn't, as it didn't do for poor Chanticleer in the story because he couldn't fully embrace the reality of that solitude because his own heart and his own mind were too proud, they were too buzzing, they were too overwhelmed with the reality that he had to face. Um, in his wonderful book, Digital Minimalism, Cal Newport has uh, an anecdote in chapter four about how uh, Abraham Lincoln, in the middle of the Civil War, used to go in, on a, used to go and visit a small cottage in the middle of Washington, D.C., in a small secluded area between two busy streets. And he would go there for hours, for days at an end sometimes, in the middle of the war, where he would be completely incommunicado, and nobody would be able to actually reach him and speak to him. And he did that because in the solitude of that quiet, comforting, beautiful place was the only reality, the only place where he could even imagine, where he could even manufacture any sort of thought process that could get him to make the necessary decisions to fight the bloodiest and the worst war on American soil. So again, the secret for him was solitude and embracing it. This idea is one that is being preached by many, many productivity experts. I'm sure you've heard plenty of about the benefits of solitude. Plenty of books are being written um, on this. Sometimes it's called something else, not solitude. Sometimes it's called stillness. Ryan Holiday has a book that I want to read that looks really interesting called Stillness is the Key. I haven't read it. Some of you might have. Uh, like I mentioned, Digital Minimalism by Cal Newport has an entire chapter dedicated to solitude and its necessity for you to, uh, for people to be able to uh, create anything. <clears throat> entire philosophies of work culture are being developed around this core idea. Michael Hyatt's 
free to focus idea, his, his full focus planner. And basically his entire business is built around the idea of being able to manufacture a state of solitude, even in the middle of a busy work culture. <clears throat> and it sounds, so this reality that is being preached everywhere sounds something like this. You absolutely need, whether you like it or not, to be able to find either a place that you go to that is quiet, or a state that you are able to manufacture in which you can be alone with your own thoughts. Why? Because in that state of aloneness, in that state of solitude, in that state of stillness, if you're in it long enough, I apologize for the uh, noise going on in the background, but this is COVID reality. But if you're in that state long enough, then the brain is allowed to leave its everyday crazy reality when the brain is freed of the humdrum reality of everyday life, of the constant thrashing about, of the running here and there, hither and there, doing all the stuff that you have to do in order to get through the day, that's when it can start making connections, strange, unusual connections. That's where the, uh, the trope of having your best ideas in the shower comes from, because in the shower you're not thinking about anything, and suddenly weird, interesting ideas start to connect with each other, right? And uh, Michael here offers uh, his input. I have found if you are able to begin your day with a significant time in solitude and stillness, I am much more able to repel the negative energy of others, as you just spoke about, and cultivate inner stillness again throughout the day. And uh, Michael Hyatt preaches this idea uh, in his uh, extensive uh, formula in how to create and make a morning ritual. And yes, rituals do help very much in helping the in help very much in aiding the brain to create a state where connections can be made now all this should be actually obvious to anybody who is actually paying attention to how uh, the brain works and as anybody who's who has read, read extensively in this kind of literature basically what it is it's manufacture solitude around yourself whether it means you actually leave your home and go to a place that is quiet or whether you manufacture a quiet space around you by focusing intently. Those are the same thing. You don't actually have to have a place. You don't have to live in the country like I do, and you don't have to go on daily walks from eight to nine in the morning, which is what I try to do, uh, in the forest where there is no noise whatsoever, where I turn off my, all my podcasts, don't, let, don't listen to anything, and just kind of let my mind wander. If you have the opportunity, that of course is good, but you could also manufacture that sort of thing around yourself using different things including noise cancelling headphones highly recommended uh, so then become comfortable with boredom that's another thing that's often talked about seek out stillness wait for inspiration to happen and as i mentioned it often does but all these systems have a fatal flaw this inspiration that's supposed to come this connections these connections that the brain is supposed to manufacture where does it come from does it come from just the information that you already have your, inside yourself? Well, the experts say it's your, your brain synthesizing the information, the inputs, the stimuli that you have come across through the course of your day, your week, your month, your life, right? Well, fantastic. That's great. That's a wonderful thing. But do you see the seed of the problem here? What if you are not the kind of person who has yet developed the practice to fill yourself with the right kind of stimuli, with the right kind of information, with the right kind of reading, with the right kind of communication, conversation, and interaction with people who are wiser, more still, and better than you. 
then what? Well, what happens is you still get the feeling of elation at synthesis. The brain still manufactures information, still manufactures insight based on unexpected connections, even if you don't have a lot of inputs or stimuli. But the synthesis that you feel and the elation that comes of it might actually not be all that substantial if you look at it objectively from the side. Here's what I mean. When I was in my mid-20s, I was going through one of several crises of life and personal life and professional life and intellectual life. And I decided that I would go and live in a monastery on a frozen island in the north of Russia. <laughs> That's my two-year-old <laughs> who doesn't know about frozen islands in the north of Russia. Uh, or maybe he does. And that's why he's singing so loudly. I, I don't know. Um, so I decided I would go into the into Vala Monastery. For those of you who know, it's in the middle of Lake Ladoga, which is basically right near Finland. Uh, middle of nowhere in the winter to go and live basically like a monk. Why are you? Why would I do such a thing? Well, actually, there was an exchange program available for international students, college students, to go as a kind of cultural exchange. Uh, and I and that's how I got my visa. I got it. I got it through an organization that usually works with Europeans, secular Europeans who have nothing to do with with Christianity for the most part, who just want to have the experience of stillness and solitude in a place in the best kind of place to have solitude an island you can't get off it and there really isn't anything there except the monastery so <laughs> you will have solitude whether you like it or not and so this this is what happened i was dealing with some some issues i was dealing with some questions about life i was thinking about where my life was going and what i should do with it and there was a moment of synthesis and i remember it as being one of the most brilliant and one of the most uh, elated moments of my life. That's how I remember it. But recently I went back and thought about what it was that I actually figured out. And what it was that I figured out is was the level of was was the, on the same level of insight as I have on a weekly basis now. It wasn't a big moment of anything. It was just me figuring a tiny, tiny little bit about my life. Of course, I was quite young and I was very immature emotionally, as many young men are in our time, unfortunately. And in spite of the fact that I was and am quite widely read, it still meant that at that point, the insight that I got from Solitude felt great. I have a photo of myself. Uh, I took a photo of, photo of myself at that moment to memorialize the moments that I could look back on it in the future and remember the joy of that moment and i looked at that photo and it's a bit silly i have a kind of a dumb uh <laughs> grin on my face and i remember that feeling but uh like i said looking at it objectively i now realize that the insight that i had was not at all advanced what am i trying to say here well what i'm trying to say is that solitude is great but if you don't do step one like we talked about last week, if you don't do the take the necessary steps to find a mentor, whether that mentor is an actual person that you interact with or a series of books that you decide to read or a way of life that you decide to lead, both of which are necessary, then you will always be limited in your insights that you can get from solitude. You will think that you have come up with incredibly brilliant things, but you will not know how little it is that you actually know. And how do we overcome that? Is it simply by reading more? Well, no, because the point about my story in Valam is that I was, a, I was at that point a very, very well-read young man. 
take us, uh, you know, an average person my age at that point, I had read probably more than most people my age in the United States. That's not me bragging. That's just simply uh, a, um, a function of my upbringing. My parents made sure that I read a lot. And still, even with all that reading, the insight that I was able to make was necessarily limited because the solitude that I had was a solitude with myself. It was not a solitude of synthesis with anyone other than myself. And I wanted to bring the example of a fairy tale here, the, the latest fairy tale in my um, podcast, In a Certain Kingdom. This is the Russian version of Beauty and the Beast. It's called The Red Flower. That's my translation of it. Sometimes it's called The Scarlet Flower. But there is a really interesting event that happens. So the beast in this version of the story is not punished for being shallow, as, as in the movie, uh, whether the cartoon or the live-action movie, doesn't matter. He's not punished for being evil or petty or negative in any way. He is punished because a sorceress didn't like his father. And this beast figure was stolen basically from the cradle and raised by a witch who hated him and who cursed him from childhood to look like a beast. And she told him that until somebody comes to love you in the form that you are, you will remain in this way. And something amazing happens. And this is what's so amazing about fairy tales is that they have these gaps that you're supposed to fill in kind of by figuring stuff out uh, by intuition. How is it that somebody who was plucked out of his uh, cradle by somebody who hated him and given a life probably of you know, abuse by somebody who hated him and then was settled in the middle of a dark and distant forest with nothing around him to provide him with any sort of meaningful internal content. How is it that he was able to do what? To create a place that was this beautiful. Let me, let me explain it. Finally, the father of the merchant came out to a wide clearing and in the middle of that clearing stood a palace as though lit up in flames, in silver and gold and light. And all around the palace were the most beautiful and fruitful gardens and orchards he had ever seen, covered in birds of paradise that he had never even imagined. And between the trees, fountains constantly jetted into the air in elaborate patterns. The merchant walked through the gardens in wonder, not knowing what to look at. His eyes rushed hither and thither without his will. Suddenly he saw a flower, red in color, of unheard of and indescribable beauty. And he spoke aloud in joy. There it is. There is the red flower. What's so interesting about the Russian version of the story is that the beauty is not manufactured. It's not Rococo. It's not uh, fancy um, furniture and, ma and manicured lawns like you would have in an 18th century French palace. It is a profusion of natural beauty that comes out in the form of a perfect, not sculpted, but natural organic garden. And the crown of it is a, a flower that seems to just grow of its own accord. It's not even cultivated. It's just there. And what I think is going on here is that this is a vivid image uh, of the fact that the beast was able to have a solitude in which he gleaned insight and meaning by participation with a higher power. We don't get any glimpse of any higher powers in the story, but it's the only possible answer because he is 
in a lot of ways, an extremely virtuous character. Now, if you're thinking of the Beast from the from the Disney movie, you're thinking, what virtuous character? The guy was cantankerous and awful and nobody could possibly love him and he needed Bell to reform him. That's not how the Russian story goes. He is already a remarkably moral character, even though he threatens to kill the father. But the reason he does is something I cover in uh, episode 7 of In a Certain Kingdom. If you're interested in that, go and check it out. So what am I trying to talk about here? Why? What made the Beast manifest such beauty? This is why having a mentor, as we talked about last week, is so important. Ultimately, the thought I was trying to get at is that only good is the only good solitude, the one that doesn't have the fatal flaw, is when you descend deeply into the thorny wilderness of your own heart, face it bravely, but have the help of your mentor to do it. Well, who was the beast's mentor? It's ineffable. It's a mystery. We don't know, but I'm sure he had one. There are some wonderful strategies, by the way, on how to do that, on how to make your solitude in something that's not simply a solipsistic experience, a facing of yourself with yourself, which has limited benefit. Uh, most of the aforementioned experts that I talk about, when they, talk, when they mention how to descend into yourself, they talk about meditation. But meditation still presents us with the same problem, because in meditation, if I understand it correctly, you're still encountering yourself, though at a more deep and profound level. But what if yourself is not yet worth encountering? Then you need encounter with other. And what sort of other are you going to encounter? Well, that's why you need the mentor, right? And that's why you need to choose your mentor so carefully. I have some specific, more specific techniques and thoughts about how to, to make this possible. And I'm going to share them with you in the email that I'm going to send out on Monday as part of this new series that I'm doing. So if you're interested in exploring the topic of the good kind of solitude, the kind of solitude that provides meaning, do sign up at nicholaskotar.com forward slash resilience, where I'm going to, and on Monday, I'm going to share uh, my thoughts on how, as well as some resources from people far more wise than I am, and how to do it properly, and what some of the perks, for lack of a better word, might be. Thank you for listening. If you like what you've heard and you'd like to delve more deeply into this topic, check out my audio series on stories that unite in dark times, available exclusively at nicholaskotar.com forward slash stories that unite. And if you're hankering for more fantasy stories, check out my own Raven Sun epic fantasy series inspired by Russian fairy tales, available now in audio, paperback, and ebook formats. This show is produced by the wonderful Derek Cummins, and the beautiful title music is Lighthouse in the Rain, originally composed by Velislava Franta. You can find her work on SoundCloud.